Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Uh, John is on hiatus, not really relaxing, but uh, doing some research today. And as usual, after the show, I'm meeting up with him to discuss our next steps in a big case that we're working on. Seems like we have a lot of those. Don't know why that happens, but it does. Uh, So this week I want to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to get to a story a little bit later dealing with uh, the investigation by former Supreme Court Justice uh, Daniel Gableman into election irregularities in Wisconsin. But first, I want to talk about this uh, general notion of deterrence that we have in our society that's incorporated into our uh, philosophy of criminal laws. And I know you've heard me talk about this before, but um, we have some very profound examples of how that concept isn't really working at all in our uh, assumptions that we make about the laws that apply to all of us in our lives. And any time that you're in court and there's a judge that's pronouncing sentence, they're supposed to go through a number of factors that they're frankly, required to consider in imposing a sentence. And they include things like the rehabilitative needs of a defendant, um, the need to provide appropriate punishment, the need to protect society, and part of it is always to deter this specific defendant and to deter others from committing similar crimes. And... I think the most uh, profound example of how this is just failing to work is uh, the recent, and I say recent, it's been in effect for a couple years now, but the law that would require anybody with a fourth offense or higher conviction that has a previous conviction within 15 years of the instant offense, instant meaning current offense, must... uh, permanently lose their operating privileges to drive a car for the rest of their lives. Now, that there is a way in which someone can apply for an occupational license later in time, but the point is that it starts with a presumption that somebody will, in fact, not be driving ever again, uh, stripping somebody of that ability to drive. And... I'm actually giving a presentation on this topic in November about constitutional challenges to that uh, very concept. But what I want to talk about today is how this is supposed to be a deterrent for others that may find themselves in a similar situation. And really the failings of our society in effectively implementing that concept Let's face it, the way that we deal with it now is that we rely upon people's general knowledge of the law. And I don't know about you, but um, it's my job to be familiar with the law, but it's probably not your job, at least not as uh, detailed as I am supposed to know the law. I mean, I spend every day, all day, seven days a week uh, studying the law and keeping current on new developments, changes, uh, legislative action, uh, court interpretations, studying trends throughout the state and the country. But 
uh, John Q. Public has a job, a different job, not that job, and is somehow, we envision that all of the nuances of the law will be not only understood at the time that someone is facing criminal charges, but before then. And, and I want you to listen to me about that before then. So when someone commits a crime and then they're going to be deterred from committing further crimes, uh, when there is a harsh reality of uh, imposing a component of a sentence, such as permanent loss of driving privileges, the philosophy of justice that surrounds all of that naturally assumes that a person would be on notice that such a thing would occur. Now, I've kept track. I've had roughly 40 clients, well, maybe a little bit more, maybe 45 clients that uh, have fallen into this category since this law took effect. And I make a point every single time when I meet with one of these folks that comes to my office to ask them if they were aware at the time, you know, before they went out and got caught allegedly drinking and driving, if they knew that upon conviction they would lose their license for life. Every single one of those people said, no, I had no idea. And this is one of those provisions in the law. And again, it's an assumption, but it's also one that is there out of sheer necessity. And necessity, I mean, there's no other way that we've come up with that could function appropriately. Now, when I say that, what I mean is this assumption that anyone who is facing a criminal charge knows the law, knows what the law is. Because you've heard the phrase many, many times, uh, hopefully you have, that ignorance of the law is no defense. So here comes the necessity. Well, if there was a defense where you could say, I didn't know the law, that would apply virtually any time someone just said they didn't know what the law was. And because we can't have that, we say, oh, well, we're just going to assume that you did. Sort of bridging the gap between um, logic and fact out of necessity because our system wouldn't work any other way. All right, you follow me? So when someone comes in and says, I had no idea that, it, that if I broke this law, I would be forever banned from ever operating a motor vehicle again. The answer is, well, you should have known. And we have to presume that you knew. And it's not a rebuttable presumption. It just is what it is. You were on notice because it's in the law books. As if you're going to study the law books. You know, imagine that. So you're, you know that you've got three prior convictions for drunk driving going years and years ago, and you're, you're at a tavern, and you're thinking, hmm, I've had a couple drinks. Should I drive or not? Uh, bartender, could you give me a law book, uh, a current law book that you might have behind the bar there so that I can study up on whether I should be driving home or not? Oh, gee, it says here that if I do, I could never drive again. Well, I guess I won't. Um... You know, that sounds crazy, but it's kind of <laughs> kind of the way that our, our law just doesn't accommodate for the fact that out of necessity, we have to, well, there's no other way. There's no other way that it could be applied because we fear that someone would simply come in and say, hey, I didn't know that. Just simply didn't know. Um, <laughs> so 
I know that seems a bit facetious, but um, that's the way the law operates. And it's one of those examples of how the imprecision of our system can result in really probably an unjust consequence. Now, I'm not here to say that, you know, you can't have penalties and because and, and you can't apply them because people don't know them. But um, there are things that we can do. Now, I just want to take you back a ways. Now, if you're my age or older, you remember before Facebook and Instagram and, you know, sort of uh, bullet point news type things that came out that there used to be news news, like you'd read a newspaper and the information in the newspaper was as detailed as the newspaper assumed that uh, people could tolerate. In other words, the level of detail, the level of information that was there uh, years ago used to be more detailed because it was anticipated by the publishers of that newspaper that people would read that detail. I've noticed even in um, very, uh, what's the right word, um, precise or uh, uh, detail-oriented news sources, such as the Washington Post, New York Times, even um, you know local newspapers, there's been an adjustment uh, to include less detail because I think that publishers realize that the attention span of the average person has uh, narrowed somewhat over the years. So news has to be delivered in a uh, quick, general, sort of uh, rapid-fire kind of way because news is consumed much more like fast food than it was a gourmet dinner um, in the past. So that's one aspect of this that we've sort of seen a whittling away in our society of the, the tolerance that people have to ingest a detail when it comes to the news. And I remember being a kid um, and seeing things on television where there would be a very in-depth analysis of all different aspects of something on television. Or you read an article in the Wall Street Journal and it goes into many, many pages of the ins and outs of a particular news piece. And um, we'll talk more about this when we come back from the break. Um, so listen to our sponsors and buy the stuff that they are selling you. In the early days of our country, laws would be posted by literally posting them on the public square or uh, at meeting places at various locations where it could be uh, accurately predicted that people would read them. Um, we kind of have that now. I mean, if you go to the library, you can see that there are postings on the bulletin board. It's more about plays and lectures and things that are happening in town or maybe fundraisers and such. And of course we have the free newspapers that go out. Like I think here we have the beacon is a good example um, where there are general news items displayed, but let's face it, um, that paper uh, exists primarily because of the advertising that is involved. So it is being supported by the fees that are charged in order to place an ad in that paper. Um, but uh, flash forward over the years and you see that um, news has become, when we look at it today, something that is primarily, with most consumers, a 
um, an electronic method of delivery. And the things that catch people's attention that draw advertising tend to be more uh, salacious, so to speak. Um, I know even when I'm going on CNN or Fox News or something like that on the interwebs, you know, you scroll down past the story and there's all kinds of stuff at the bottom there that might attract your attention. And usually it's not stuff that's really, really news. It's more like, you know, stuff that'll catch your eye or stuff that'll draw your interest because it just seems interesting. And it's kind of taking you away from, um, I suppose, what our society deems a responsibility that we all have no matter your age, level of sophistication, your education. And if you're like many people in our society that work, you know, 12 hours a day and you work third shift and you're struggling to get by, um, I don't know when you find time to engage in a scholarly um, study of the current state of the law. So true, you know, we kind of rely upon uh, the manner in which laws can be disseminated to the public for their understanding. Now, believe it or not, the official way for laws to be um, put on notice is uh, on the federal level, there's something called the Federal Register. And every day the Federal Register comes out and you'll, it could be hundreds, if not thousands of pages of esoteric, very finely detailed provisions of the law that no mortal human could possibly absorb every day, again, unless it was your sole duty in life to learn those things. Um, on the state level, we assume that when uh, bills are passed and signed into law that the media will sufficiently cover it, but there is, of course, a way both online and if you wish to subscribe to legislative updates, you can be notified of um, developments in the law. Again, something that would take a remarkable amount of time to be fully cognizant of on a regular basis. So with that, we the courts assume that John Q. Public knows what's going on, knows when changes occur, and if they didn't, it's their fault for not looking at it. But after all, when someone comes in my office and is asking for legal advice, that's usually the first time that they hear something's... <laughs> going to befall them if they get found guilty of something. Now, let me back up just for just a second, like I often do. Um, you know, there are laws that try to achieve different purposes, and all of this is in the world of imagination, meaning that when our uh, wise legislators, and I put that in air quotes, come up with laws that are designed to achieve a particular purpose, there's a lot of hypotheticals out there. Like, let's say we've got this situation and we want to achieve this goal and we're going to do it by strengthening this law or making this some way or whatever the case may be. And then you go to an actual case where there's a judge in court who's saying, golly, we have to um, deter other people that might do the same thing as if the entire world is watching every case and hearing every word uttered by that judge, judge when he or she says, hey, I'm sending you to prison for this long because everybody else who might do the same thing should be listening. That way, they won't do it. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, that's just not logical. So when 
laws are passed to achieve a particular purpose. Um, bear in mind, there's so many different ways that things can be manipulated in such a way to make it sound like it's a really good idea. And I'll use the example, it's not a very savory subject to discuss, but <clears throat> one that that is provides an excellent example is our laws against possession of child pornography. And I know we don't like to talk about that kind of thing in, in normal social speak, but again, a judge will presume that each and every one of us knows the law you know, very precisely as it relates to this, because if someone is caught in possession of this material, trust me, um, a judge will not listen to any sort of argument that you didn't know how bad it was. So you may know this, and if you don't, you, you need to know that there is no mandatory minimum penalty for murdering somebody. Okay. You know, it's theoretically possible for a judge to impose a sentence of nothing. There is no mandatory minimum penalty for raping somebody. The judge, again, if the judge thought it appropriate, could uh, impose no penalty. Now, that's not likely, but the point is that the legislature hasn't said that it's so bad that we need to, in every case, that we need to take away the discretion of a judge and impose a four forecast a, a previously determined minimum sentence that would apply in each and every case. Yet, someone who finds themselves either intentionally or maybe inadvertently, and I and that's a topic for another show. I know we've talked about that somewhat on this show in the past, but let's say someone finds themselves, unfortunately, in possession of child pornography. Well, if there's a conviction for each and every image or recording that is part of that conviction, there's a mandatory minimum of three years in prison. No no ifs, ands, or buts. And there's one very minor exception to that, that if there's a difference in age of 48 months or less between the person depicted in the picture and the person convicted of possessing it, well, there can be an opportunity for probation, but only if the judge makes very specific certain findings. So, you know, again, I'm using this as an example because there is no discretion on the part of the court when they're met with this situation. Now, there's good reason why laws are tough when it comes to this, but it goes back many, many years when, again, we don't like to talk about this, but we're going to. Child pornography was something that uh, was and remains a very big problem in our society, but the methods by which it was created and the CD underworld of producing these kinds of things was, uh, and I'm not going to make light of it, but it was uh, a very dangerous situation and these things had monetary value because it was contraband, rare contraband, okay? So... Back when these laws were first created, this was when, and by the way, when they were first created, there were no mandatory minimums. They were just deemed to be very serious crimes. But I'll take you back to the, let's say, the 1960s, 1970s, when the only way that um, these types of images could be produced would be by actually, um, you know, gross, but um, finding a child somehow getting that child to engage in 
activity, recording it by filming or taking a picture, and then without the internet, you know, basically putting it up for sale in the black market like it was cocaine or heroin, you know? And then the there's that group of people that I suppose that if there was a market created for this kind of thing will pay top dollar for it because of its rarity. In the legislators' minds, that created an incentive. The fact that it had value, the fact that people would pay top dollar for something, theoretically. And, and it happened, yes. I mean, there were people that would pay a lot of money, you know, gross as it is, to obtain uh, these types of images because they couldn't be found any other way or anywhere else. And if it's a person that wanted to see that kind of stuff, again, gross, but it was something that happened and there was a market for it and people would charge money and people would pay money. So, you know, bear that in mind as we have this discussion going forward. And uh, in the meantime, we do have to take a break for commercial messages, but we'll be right back after these messages. You know, just a little footnote here as we continue. Some might um, be concerned about this subject matter being uh, discussed on talk radio. Uh, it's not designed to offend anybody, but I will tell you this. Um, there are young people that are engaging in such activity as sharing pictures, intimate pictures of each other, and they shouldn't be doing that. And I don't think it's uh, ever too early to educate your child or grandchild about the risks involved with that type of activity. So I'm trying to be very academic about this, but sometimes it involves a discussion about uncomfortable topics. So um, I'm sure you can tolerate it. Um, going back to when laws such as this were created years ago, and there was a, you know, a real world impact on how these things were done. And, and it should not surprise anybody that there was, uh, an effort to make child pornography illegal, of course. Um, but again, the, the very great threat that it had to society included the safety of children because many ways in which pornography used to be produced involved kidnapping or perhaps even killing a child, you know, in the process of producing. And obviously, it's horrible. Yet the legislature did not impose mandatory minimum penalties, um, but did, of course, designate it as a very serious offense. Now, this is back when... In order to obtain it, uh, a defendant or an accused that would uh, want possession of this pornography would have to go through a great deal of effort and spend money where there's no question that the person, you know, wanted it. It's just demonstrated by the actions and the, the complex nature of how things were, were obtained. And as I said, it was the functional equivalent of you know, purchasing drugs, hard drugs from somebody on the street. There'd be a negotiation, there'd be a price set, there'd be, you know, uh, the delivery and the exchange of <clears throat> currency and so forth. And, uh, you know, no, no question about the person's intent when they're going down that path and they know it's illegal and they know how bad it is just because of what it is. But, you know, over the years, and, I, you know, I'm not defending the... <laughs> the way that this stuff happens, it's it's something that we do need to protect children from, absolutely. And uh, children do get uh, victimized on an ongoing basis when these sorts of things happen. That's true. 
But nowadays, people can and do come into possession of this stuff in, in much more roundabout ways. And, you know, if you've heard me talk about this subject before, there are things called file transfer protocol programs, such as LimeWire, FrostWire, things like that. There are also, um, if you're computer savvy, ways to sort of backdoor into a website that might be a paid site that, you know, you end up, whether you like it or not, in possession of this. Now, the law says, and you'll find this, I, I hope not humorous, but certainly surprising. The law says that if you accidentally come into possession of child pornography, what you're supposed to do is drop everything, call the FBI or the local police and say, oops, I've got something on my computer, come look at it. Which means they'll look at everything on your computer. And if you have anything on there that you're worried about, you know, simple privacy reasons, um, people not seeing for whatever reason, maybe you just value your privacy, which is fine in our country. But, you know, that's the escape valve. And they put that in the law because it eliminates the defense of innocent possession. Okay. So it's kind of like a trick in there. Oh, well, you didn't, you didn't call the FBI right away. So we're going to say that you knew what you were doing and you knew what it was and you possessed it. Um, yet now we have these mandatory minimums in these types of cases. It's all based on the fact. Why, why do we have that? Why is it there? And why do we feel justified in saying, you know, here you go. You're off to prison because you, you had this. You didn't pay for it. You weren't necessarily even looking for it, but you had it. Well, because of deterrence, right? That's the argument you'll hear to deter people. People are supposed to be so scared of accidentally coming across child pornography that they'll, they'll do all kinds of things to avoid it at all costs. And that does tend to work in general. But let's go back to my original example here. You're you happen to have three drunk driving convictions in your past or four or five. And you might be shocked to say, how often does that happen? Well, it happens a lot um, because we go back to 1989 when you're counting offenses that could add up to that total. And we're not talking about accidents or people dying or people getting injured. We're talking about somebody who may have been just barely over the legal limits and probably not a harm to anybody except in the purest technical sense in the past. And bear in mind that with a fourth offense or higher, maybe you didn't know this, but a person's alcohol concentration can be no more than 0 0.02 if they have three prior convictions in their past. Meaning that's a drink or a drink and a half, which again, a lot of people don't even know that. So you could be in a situation where you had one drink absolutely not impaired whatsoever but because it is the fourth time that it happened in your life with some exceptions to that rule you are now facing the possibility if sentenced well let me say this if sentenced you will not drive uh, a car okay so uh, we we justify that by saying it's the law you can't claim ignorance of the law too bad if you didn't know now I just have an idea here, and I, I wonder if this is silly or if my uh, colleagues at the Department of Transportation would think that this is just a bad idea. I think it's a good idea. Right now, the Department of Transportation knows every single person who, if tomorrow 
they picked up another drunk driving, they would lose their operating privileges for life. They know that. They know who they are. It's in their database. You might know who you are, but the point is that the DOT knows who those people are. Couldn't we send a letter that says, hey, just so you know, there's been this change in law. And if you ever get another drunk driving, you will lose your operating privileges for life. Signed, Department of Transportation. It costs, you know, 50 cents, 50, however much your stamp costs, 52 cents or whatever, you know, um, to send that letter. Now, I know that that's a taxpayer cost, but if we're really looking at trying to equip people with knowledge of the law so that they can conform their behavior to the law, couldn't we do just a little bit more to let people know what that law is? And as I've said, the percentage of people that I've represented that were aware of that law is 0%. And it feels unfair. Of course, there's nothing we can do about it. But is that a bad idea? I mean, would it cost a tremendous amount of money for the Department of Transportation to send out those letters, or upon conviction for a third offense. Because they send letters anyway that say, hey, here's your revocation period, here's when you're eligible for reinstatement, here's when your waiting period for an occupational period, you know, license ends. And by the way, if you get another one, you're toast. How hard would it be? You know, I mean, that would really serve the function of deterrence if we took a little effort to make sure that those things happen and not simply rely upon our, you know, private organizations that uh, put the news out there to pay attention to it. And if they do, it just goes out to the general masses and people would say, you know, they might see it as a blurb item, but is it going to stick? Is it going to be something that stays in your head, like permanently, <laughs> forever? Um, but if you get a letter that says, hey, you, uh, guess what? You're, you're, Facing a very serious problem if you ever end up in this situation again. I suspect that if that happened, there could be a direct uh, result of saving lives. I, I don't know, and you certainly couldn't prove it. But it makes a lot more hypothetical sense than just to enact a law and then hope that people become aware of it. I'm doing my part by telling you about it right now, but I know not everybody in the state is listening to this radio show right now, or at least not everybody that could face that potential consequence. In the process of doing that, and this is part of what I'm talking about at this upcoming lecture, we're creating this um, subclass of citizenry that is basically barred from having an equal shot at making a living wage. Uh, meaning that you have to find, if you if you have the means to hire a limo driver to get you to your job, okay, no problem. Or if you don't have a job because you're independently wealthy, you probably don't care. But if you're like most people and you have to work and you have to pay your bills and you have to support your kids. So think about this. If we're saying that per, that group of people can't afford to have a job that's anywhere further than walking distance or public transportation, and you can't have kids because you won't be able to pay for their neat basic needs. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. I have to switch gears because we are running out of time, and I did promise you that I would talk about the Gableman investigation. I just want to um, 
reference a, an article that came out in the Wisconsin Law Journal earlier this week. It was on Thursday, as a matter of fact. And it's basically an opinion piece written by attorney Greg Herman. So I'm going to give proper attribution here. And I just want to quote from this article and give you a sense of um, an, an issue that you know, I'm very familiar with, but I want you to be aware of it too. So attorney Herman here says, uh, a friend of mine who was a federal prosecutor told me once that the problem with special prosecutors being appointed to investigate potential crimes was that they have an incentive to find a reason to issue charges. A full-time prosecutor reviews numerous cases and makes individual determinations whether or not to prosecute. On the other hand, a special prosecutor is being hired for one case. Therefore, there's a tendency to want to find a reason to issue charges where it would seem that the investigation is wasted. In addition, any decision-maker, be it a judge or a jury, would be disqualified from any case where they had previously expressed an opinion in the matter. Even if the juror promised that they could put aside any preconceived opinion, the prior opinion would likely serve as a basis for disqualification. Good point. As a result, the so-called, quote, investigation into Wisconsin's 2020 presidential election by former Supreme Court Justice Michael D. Gableman falls short of normal legal standards. Gableman was appointed by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss as a, quote, special prosecutor. Prior to his appointment, Gableman had visited Arizona's election review and a conference put on by election conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, you know, the um, my pillow guy. In addition, he has been quoted as saying, quote, a lot of people in this room are very disappointed by how the November 2020 election was run, and you didn't just grumble about it and go back home and let bygones be bygones. You recognize that this is where we draw the line. Is there anyone who really believes that Gableman will not find that the election is tainted? He could probably have written this report the day after he was appointed. The television show The McLaughlin Group used to give an annual award for the, quote, best political theater. This so-called investigation would have been a sure winner. It is not an appropriate legal process, even though it is spearheaded by a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. That is not to say that there should not be legitimate investigations. However, the Arizona investigation revealed that Trump actually lost that state by more votes than previously reported, and numerous courts have rejected challenges to the election process in various states. Not one court found otherwise. Of course, courts are not are bound by former rules of evidence rather than surmise and hyperbole. These rules, while occasionally frustrating, are helpful in keeping the decision or verdict based on provable facts. It does not appear that there that that, that is a direction in which Justice Gableman is proceeding. Rather, it seems to be his assignment to find reason to challenge the results. This would be consistent with the trial of Alice in Wonderland, where the Queen says, sentence first, verdict afterwards. Well, here, here. Um, now, th this is commentary on the fact that what's going on right now, this supposed investigation into uh, 2020 election results, which, you know, fine, that's something that if somebody wants to look into that, they absolutely should. But this special prosecutor process, I want to talk about that because it's something that pervades the law in all areas, not just that type of investigation. And in fact, I think it's even more problematic when it comes to existing criminal charges because of the nature of how special prosecutions are undertaken. Special prosecutions come into play normally when there is a conflict of interest that exists from a particular district attorney's office. I'll give you a very good example. 
the uh, trial of Stephen Avery, not the one where he was uh, ultimately exonerated, but the one after that where he was convicted of the murder of Teresa Halbach. That was a case that emanated from Manitowoc County, jurisdiction-wise. And because of the fact that there had been a previously ongoing lawsuit regarding civil damages uh, at the hands of many Manitowoc County personnel, the Manitowoc County District Attorney's Office properly, rightfully, disqualified itself from participation in that process. And they basically said, hey, who out there wants to handle this case? And by the way, special prosecutors don't normally receive any additional compensation. It's simply a volunteer thing. So someone out there has to say, uh, I would like to take on this task. The motivations behind it really aren't questioned, but one might assume that it's just a matter of honor. I don't know. But if you know this story, or if you've watched Making a Murderer, or if you followed it back when it happened, you know that um, the district attorney of Calumet County at the time was Ken Kratz. And he raised his hand and said, I'll do it. And almost immediately started having uh, public displays of political theater occurring. Uh, leaking information into the public sector that was questionably admissible at a later point in trial. Basically, glory-seeking. That's what he was doing, right? Now, when we, we see other things that have happened over the years where a particular district attorney believes that they would have a conflict of interest. And conflicts of interest are very important to acknowledge because they... It implicates the rules of ethics as well as other statutory procedures that prevent a prosecutor from acting, and for that matter, a judge from acting on a particular case if there is, in fact, a conflict of interest or if it could even be perceived from an outsider looking in that there could be a conflict of interest. The appearance of a conflict is something that could form the basis for that. Great example would be, you know, somebody who works in the DA's office is a victim of a crime or there's uh, the judge knows that uh there's a financial you know an employee of the judge to uh, clean his or her house is on trial well you know that person is getting paid to do a job in a different context probably not wise to have the judge sitting on that case so when the the appointment of a special prosecutor often becomes uh, arises out of necessity because of these conflict of interest situations but I can tell you from my experience in dealing with these, there is an expectation uh, far different from when it's handled by the normal process. The normal process of analyzing charges, looking at proof matters, looking at, uh, you know, the strength of the case, uh, taking into account all things that, that lead to an objective decision about what to do, kind of go out the window because somebody showed up like a knight in shining armor that said, I'll take your case. And then they run with it. And I don't know if it's a psychological incentive or otherwise, but, you know, when, when one does that, when they volunteer to take that case and they say, I will spearhead this effort for you, um, you know, there is this almost, um, you know, the, the ghost in the room is that there is an expectation that there would be a perhaps more vigorous prosecution than it is otherwise warranted. I've, I've seen that, you know, actually happen with my own eyes and ears. And 
it takes away what you know a, a typical regular district attorney might take into account you know including the economies of the situation when i say that what i mean is if it's something that normally would in the regular scheme of things receive its appropriate attention on on the uh spectrum of severity of cases that um it may not warrant a vigorous prosecution it may warrant a deferred conviction situation it may warrant you know dismissal of charges altogether or the non-issuance of charges to begin with but that would seem like the special prosecutor didn't really dive into it well enough and I think there's a perception that if one were to do that, that there would be questions about whether there was some sort of fealty uh, to the originating district attorney when that happened. You know, again, uh, hey, I've got a person who is works for our office and I'm the DA. I can't prosecute it, but I want somebody else to. And they come back and say, oh, no charges. You know, you would think gosh, that's not really what we wanted. We wanted you to go after this person uh, to kind of vindicate us. So, you know, there's there's those, it's, it's kind of one of those things that we, what do we do about it? I mean, you can't really stop it from happening. It's just the way the process occurs. But I think this um, Gableman, I know I call him Daniel Gableman before, it's, it's Michael Gableman, obviously, um, is... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of weird. It's like, hey, I, I already know how I want this investigation to go, so pick me. You know, I, I know a lot about this stuff, and I've prejudged the situation, and I will deliver the product that you are seeking. Um, all right, so was that political theater? Absolutely. Um, why? Why did it go down that path? Well, we can speculate all we want, but uh, I suppose it doesn't really matter what conclusions are found because the entire process really is sort of an overture in dissatisfaction and kind of perpetuating something that has been very damaging to our democracy as a whole throughout our country and specifically here as well in Wisconsin, if we choose to make it that way. That's all the time that I have for you today, but please tune in next week, as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.